your work life, all of our work lives, welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. A little later in the show, I'm going to be talking about some ploys that employers use to hoodwink well-meaning job seekers and, in fairness, some ploys that job seekers try to perpetrate on employers to deceive them into being con- convincing them they're better than they are. But first, as promised in the promo for this week, I want to start with some careers for procrastinators. Sure, sure, there are some people who overcome the procrastination, but many other people feel they've got to live with it. So here are some careers that are well-suited to procrastinators because they have time pressures. It's hard to procrastinate when there's a deadline you absolutely have to meet. Some of these other careers are highly structured, which also mitigates against procrastination. And at the last, I'm also going to include a few careers that are procrastinator-friendly where timeliness is simply not very important. First, counselor. When the client rings your bell or phones or whatever, even the uh, worst procrastinator is going to answer it. Tutor. There are some niches in tutoring that don't pay crap. Autism tutor. Dissertation completion tutor. Preparing students for a high-stakes test like the SAT, GRE, MCAT, LSAT. This may surprise you, and I may be wrong, but I think this is right. Another good career for procrastinators, athletic team trainer. You see, to prevent injury, address an injury, the trainer's got to be there before the game, during the game, after practices and the games. Um, of course, there's a lot of other careers that have structured time demands, but I decided to include this one because a lot of people find the career of athletic trainer um, very rewarding, and um, it's got that interesting kind of a psychological twist to it that makes it even more interesting. Trainers often need to tease out whether the player really is in good enough shape to play. Every player wants to get back in the game. A trainer has to have a really good nose for sensing what's really going on. And also, surprisingly, trainers often can serve like as a a sounding board or a counselor because sometimes these athletes are not exactly normally the most communicative. And when they're sitting there getting their knee wrapped or their whirlpool or whatever, sometimes the athletic team trainer is uh, kind of the, the father confessor, mother confessor, if that's a term. In any case, athletic team trainer, not a bad career for procrastinators, under the radar. EMT, emergency medical technician, or the more advanced versions, paramedic, or an emergency, you know, the really advanced versions, an emergency room doctor. Now they don't call it emergency room anymore. Emergency department, doctor or nurse. You see, when the siren is blaring, even if you are a super procrastinator, you're unlikely to say, yeah, I'll deal with that later. A less urgent but still good healthcare career for procrastinators is dentist or dental hygienist. It's also deadline-driven. And it also has maybe an under-considered psychological component because dentists often have to give bad news and they've got to inflict some discomfort if only it's the Novocaine shot, which sometimes hurts more than the procedure. So um, that's a more interesting job and it's certainly appropriate for procrastinators and pays well. Haircutter. That, I've said this many times on the show, it usually ranks high in job satisfaction surveys and that's because you're working in pleasant surroundings, you're not dealing with a serious problem, something that can be fixed nearly every time. Uh, and you build ongoing relationships because you see people every six weeks, eight weeks, whatever. Um, another good career for procrastinators, a military employee. I have a client who is joining the military, and he's not a kid. He's, you know, he's let's say he's mid-20s. He's going to join the military because he is this horrible procrastinator. And he figures that if they're in the military... 
you know, they're going to provide you with a ton of structure. And if you procrastinate, he's going to hear you. Give me 100 push-ups. And that can sometimes cure procrastination in a hurry. Craftsman is another good career for procrastinators. Almost by definition, master cabinet makers, sculptors, music composers, they're not expected to produce work like clockwork. And one more. Um, the director or, or a, uh, of a long-term project or a principal in a long-term project, like researchers and book writers, they tend to have flexible deadlines. But whatever the career, of course, it certainly helps if you can procrastinate less. So if you would like to reduce your delaying tactics, might one or more of these help? Number one, try to make the task itself easier by jiggering it to emphasize your strengths. Like if you're more of a data person, make the task more data-driven. If you're more a storytelling person, see if you can be more narrative. A second way to reduce your procrastination? Remind yourself how good it will feel to get the task done. Keep that in your mind. Three, work in no more than one-hour stints. I know some procrastinators who, because they want to avoid procrastination, will sit there for two, three hours. That's, that makes it so painful that it's going to make you, your memory of tasks is going to be so bad that it's going to make you want to procrastinate more in the future. No more than an hour. Another tip, struggle with a roadblock for just a minute. If you haven't made progress within a minute, make a conscious decision whether to keep struggling, get help, come back to it later, or that you can do the project without conquering that hard part. And then last, accept that most success requires getting comfortable being uncomfortable. You see, animals from paramecium up to humans try to avoid discomfort. But only people recognize that the long-term benefit of certain short-term uncomfortabilities are more than compensated for by the long-term pleasure or the long-term success or, or the long-term societal contribution. any event, I have uh, much more. I want to talk about some careers for people who are bad with people, but I first would like to invite you to call. If you've got a career-related problem of any sort, uh, frankly, the harder the better, the phone number here at Work with Marty Nenko for what I call a workover with no pummeling involved, usually 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. So now I want to turn to careers for people who are bad with people. I have had career advising clients that turn off most people. Usually it's because they're something like they're either their appearance isn't conventionally attractive or they're too intense. People like that might want to consider one or more of the following career directions. One is to work with special needs people. Very often, kids or adults who have special needs are more accepting of adults who have, let's call it, non-standard interaction style. So if they're very laconic, the, you know, the adult, or is very intense or whatever, they're more tolerant. So might you, if you're a person who's normally, can, you consider yourself bad in working with people, might you want to work with, for example, uh, older adults who have a physical limitation or a mental limitation? Would you want to work with kids who have a developmental disability or autism? Of course, before you choose that kind of a career, it is not the right career for lots and lots of people. Um, you got to visit a facility, you know, that's serving such people. I mean, that's wise, you know, in any career, but particularly it's important when you're trying to work with special needs people. It takes a, a very special kind of person to do that kind of work. Another kind of career for people who are bad with people is to run an online business. 
Um, you know, the ever-worsening tra- traffic is causing, and other things too as well, of course, are causing ever more brick-and-mortar stores, actually whole entire malls, to close. And in, in turn, there are never larger percentage of the shopping to occur online. I used to like going to the mall. Now I, I shop online most of the time. Of course, you don't want to compete in a bailiwick, you know, dominated by Amazon or Walmart. But there are micro niches that, that are just too small for them to worry about, but are great for an individual self-employed person. And here's some examples, but I, and I really haven't vetted any of these. But just to give you an idea of the range of what they call long tail or under the radar or small, you know, micro businesses that that are just not worth uh, Amazon and Walmart or Target bothering with. World-famous brownies, your own world-famous brownies. Of course, there's a lot of health department regulations you'd have to meet. You could sell talking parrots. How about tutors for people with ADHD? Uh, You could provide that service online. Um, Custom athletic shoes for people who have very wide feet or very short feet or whatever, or very long feet. Netsuke sculptures, beautiful Japanese um, um, sculpture miniatures. Custom book binding is another example. Um, I remember when I had my dissertation bound, I went to uh, Pettengill's book bindery in Berkeley, and, uh, you know, it was very standard, and I look at it on my shelf every 10 years, and it's pretty ugly. I would think that, you know, you've worked really hard to finish your thesis, master's or doctorate, and um, you might like it nicely bound, and that might be, you know, a business that's completely under the radar. No, Amazon's not going to deal with that. Um, Personalized doormats. You know, with the name of your family or your dog, um, I have a, a doormat in front of my house. It says, uh, it's not, I didn't custom personally choose it. It was pre-made, but it was something like, beware, my dog can hold his liquor, L-I-C-K-E-R. Anyway, um, another set of careers for people who are bad with people is working with data. Might you want to get trained, for example, in accounting or coding or database management, or if you're ambitious, the field du jour, data science, um, it's probably, that's probably, the if I had to bet, that's the career that's going to experience the most continued growth over decades. Um, another example of careers for people who are bad with people, uh, working hands-on. Maybe when you were a kid, you, were, you showed an, a, kind of a natural talent for building things or fixing things with your hands. Well, there are myriad careers for hands-on people like jeweler, iPhone repairer, robotics technician, uh, the aforementioned cabinet maker, pastry chef, and nurse and physician, especially surgeon, who specializes in invasive procedures. You know, I, I, I do teach in the medical school at UCSF, and um, some of my students, they're all wonderful, I love them, but some of them crave working with in doing invasive procedures and others are terrified of it uh, and because there's an old axiom in, in the doctor's world uh, uh, watch one do one teach one meaning watch one procedure do one do it once and then go and teach somebody else it could see why that could breed insecurity unless you're really naturally gifted in working with your hands so um, there's a full range of careers for hands-on things and that doesn't require inordinate people skills Another set of careers for people who are bad with people is working with animals. Now, of course, unfortunately, uh, many jobs in this field are volunteer, like at shelters, or they're very low pay, like being a vet tech. Um, But even if you need a decent income, there may be opportunities, like 
it's just like one step removed from working directly with animals, like being an, an, an admin in a shelter or an accountant at a pet food manufacturer. Now, those aren't obviously going to have you interacting with a lot of animals, but those kind of places of employment can be a good fit for people who aren't people people because they tend to be pet friendly. They, they usually allow employees to bring their pets at work. And because, compared with the average workplace, you're more likely to find fellow doggy lovers like I am. Um, okay. So, of course, you know, I want to stress this. That just, even though I've just listed careers that are for people who are bad at people, in other words, focusing on a weakness or a limitation, um, of course, a career should also suit the things that are your pluses, your aptitudes, your skills, and your preferences, which count as well. But maybe at least one of those careers, if you're not a people person, might be something worth considering. The phone number again, if you have a work-related problem of any sort, unemployed or well-employed and still unhappy, self-employed, working for the government, working for a nonprofit, working for a company, are self-employed and um, are want to run your maybe you'd like your business to be more successful. Uh, we can play Shark Tank here, uh, but I'm not quite as mean as Kevin O'Leary. And I will give a free copy, an autographed copy of my book, Careers for Dummies, for the first person to call with a workover problem. So that should give you enough reasons to call. The phone number here at Work with Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. As I promised at the top of the show, after having run off some of these uh, kind of under-the-radar careers that uh, many listeners tend to find interesting, even if they're not looking for a job or a career, um, I promised you that I was going to talk about ways in which employers pull ploys on job seekers, usually to make the job feel seem better than it is or when they're not even going to hire. Um, and I'm also I'm going to tick those off. And then in, in my relentless desire to be fair-minded, I will also uh, describe some, uh, some um, things that job seekers who are not the most ethical do to make employers think they're better than they are. Um, okay. I do sit on both sides of the table. So I do see too often dubious behavior, sometimes outright dishonest tactics from both the employer and the job seeker. So in that spirit of encouraging the best people to get hired by the most worthy employers, so here are some tactics I've observed and how to preempt them or, or counter them. Um, and I'm, again, I'm going to start with the employer ploys and how to foil them, and then I'm going to turn to the job seeker ploys. Okay. The first ploy that employers uh, perpetrate is when an employer places a job when the job seekers don't stand a chance of getting the job. Uh, they could, the employer could be posting that. Why would an employer do that? For one or more of these reasons. This is the, I'm going to lead with the most nefarious of them. You see, an employer wants dozens of candidates to submit what they're calling work samples, not to, assess, to see whether they want to hire the person, but because that employer want, has important work that wants to get done and they want to get it done for free. I'll give you one example that would shock you. It's one thing to see some, you know, some hungry startup with some 20-somethings who are trying to make money and exit. But this was a nonprofit, and they wanted to have their first capital campaign. So it placed an ad, a small nonprofit. I'm, I'm sure a, a big one wouldn't do this, but a small nonprofit placed an ad for vice president of development, and they required all applicants to submit a plan for, what, you know, for how they would run the capital campaign. The employer never intended to hire anyone, 
only to have their existing, that one fundraising person, to have the existing fundraising person who was a low-skilled person use the best ideas from the dozens of applicants' um, annual campaign plans, I mean uh, capital campaign plans. So that's really a mo- maybe the most disgusting example of making uh, job seekers go through that for nothing. But more often... A, an employer is going to place a job when the job seeker doesn't have a chance to get in the job because it's legally required. The employer may have an inside candidate picked out or is in reality only going to hire a person from a particular demographic. And if you're not in the desired group, you're wasting your time applying. The employer may even call you in for the full series of interviews, but that's merely to give the appearance of conducting a thorough search. But no matter how well you do in those, that phalanx of five interviews, no matter how strong your references, you won't get the job and you'll be shaking your head and wondering why. And a final reason that employers place jobs when the job seeker doesn't have a chance of landing the job is simply to see who's looking. For example, if an employer places a job, he or she can see if a number of people from one of its competitors are applying. If a number of people are doing that, it suggests that the competing firm is vulnerable and therefore the company or the nonprofit or whoever can more directly try to compete and be aggressive with them. Or more often, if a star from a key competitor is applying, the employer would hire such a person but nobody else. So unless you are said star at a competitor, again, you're wasting your time applying. Now, that's the ploy. How can job seekers foil the ploy? Control the amount of work you put in. Yeah, if you're a good fit for a job you really like, apply. And yes, apply with a custom application because you'll need to do that to stand out from the horde. But if you're asked to provide an extensive work sample, provide only a bit. Say something like, this should be enough for you to assess if I'm worth interviewing or worth hiring. Hire me and if you like, I'll produce the rest and I'll do it with quality. I'll do it expeditiously. Yeah, that's going to eliminate you from some jobs. But... An ethical employer, the kind you want to work for, is going to accept your giving a smaller sample and maybe even respect you more for that. And if you get a first interview, right after you've given an answer that seems to have impressed the interview, say something like, you know, it sounds like we might have a fit here, but before we go any further, you know, as you know, sometimes a job is posted, but it's really wired, or in fact, the employer is not even likely to fill the position. Do you know the true story with this position? Now, you may or may not get an honest answer, but asking it does reduce your risk of your unnecessarily going through a bunch of stressful interviews for, no, for naught. The next ploy that employers perpetrate on job seekers is employers ask applicants to list their salary history or their salary expectations. That enables employers to find the best candidate for the money. And the applicants are in a difficult situation. See, if their previous salary was lower than what the employer would be willing to pay, their pay would have to, would get, uh, the employer would adjust the pay downward. And if the, the job seeker's previous salary is higher than other similar candidates, they're going to get eliminated. That same thinking applies to a job application that asks for your salary expectations. If a salary states too low a number, the candidate could forfeit thousands of dollars. And if the candidate states too high a number, the candidate could be eliminated from consideration even if that candidate is willing to accept a somewhat lower salary. How can you foil that ploy? Fortunately, in many jurisdictions, and I believe in all of California, it is now illegal for employers to ask for salary history. And there is a site that, um, that lists uh, those jurisdictions. So um, 
I think it's a very long URL, and I don't remember what it is, and I didn't write it down. It's too long to read it on the air anyway. But do Google uh, illegal salary history, and since most of the listeners of the show are California, just add the word California. But I believe it is not illegal, that is, it is legal, to ask for your salary requirements. If so, provide a number that's on the highest side of fair. So if your research, for example, using your colleagues in Glassdoor and Salary.com, let's say that indicates that the range for the position for your amount of experience here in the Bay Area is, say, seventy-five to 85000 I would write, in the, if it's an application form, I'd write 85000 Even I might even put 90000 And if the application allows you to write a range, I would write 80000 to 90000 depending on the specifics of the position and depending on the non-cash benefits. That's your best shot at foiling that ploy. The next ploy that employers perpetrate on job seekers is in the want ad, the job ad, or in the interview, they make the job seem better than it actually is going to be. Here's how you can foil that. Check out the workplace with a Google search of the name of the employer and the phrase employee reviews or just the word reviews. Also, consult Glassdoor.com. Glassdoor.com has all kinds of employee reviews. And yes, they tend to be the ones that are overrepresented by shills and by people who hate the, the place unduly, maybe even though it was the employee's fault. But it's, it's, it's a good data point, especially if, a, if an employer has a large number of reviews. And then when you're in the interview, ask questions like, how many hours a week would you actually expect me to work? And what would you like me to accomplish in the first 30 days? Or um, every boss is different. What would, you, what would your supervisees say is distinctive about you or about the culture here? Or... Why might someone not fit well here? Now, of course, you can't ask more than, say, one or two of these questions because uh, you're going to appear like you're really high maintenance. But the answer to even one or two questions and the facial expressions of the other interviewers, if it's a group interview, can really be illuminating. And also, you can get a sense about the job when you're offered it. If possible, ask to negotiate terms in person. Not only does that signal that you're not just going to take the first offer, it gives you a chance to assess the vibe in the workplace. Are most people working diligently, but they seem relaxed? Also, hang out in the break room. Listen to the chit-chat. Maybe ask a question like, uh, I was just offered a job here. What should I know about working here? Now, you're probably not going to get full disclosure, but with your antenna out, you usually can get a sense, a hell of a better sense, than most job seekers get when they apply for a job and they're really worrying how they're coming off. And the final ploy I want to mention that, employ- that employers perpetrate on job seekers is the lowball offer. Employers sometimes, not all, there are some very ethical employers, I'm not saying this, but certainly too often employers make a lowball offer because they know it's going to increase the chance of the candidate's going to, if, even if they don't accept that, they're going to accept an offer that's only marginally higher. And that's an offer that's a lot less than the employer would actually be willing to pay. How can you foil that? Foil that ploy. Come armed with salary data from your colleagues and websites, like I mentioned, like Glassdoor or Payscale or Salary.com, and make the case for why you're worth the top end of the range that that, those comps suggest. Or preempt a lowball offer this way. When you're told an offer is forthcoming, or even in in, one of the second or third interviews, unfortunately these days there's three or four interviews common, say that you're expecting a salary between X and Y, with Y being like 10% more than the high side of fair. 
That's a great way to avoid the lowball offer. And also, every negoti- every job seeker should negotiate heavily or more heavily on non-cash items, which may be more negotiable and are not taxable, like your training budget or your having your job description revised to emphasize your strengths. And, of course, those are benefits, those things that benefit the, the company as well as you. If you would like a workover, if you've got a work-related problem, the phone number here, work with Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's the phone number for getting some free career help here on the radio. Um, 415-841-4134. And now, as I promised, uh, in fairness, I just described unethical ploys that employers use on job seekers. Now I'm going to turn to the flip side. Unethical ploys that job seekers, and frankly, disproportionately the weak ones, use to fool employers. Now, again, I want to stipulate up front that many job seekers are quite ethical, but enough aren't to justify this little talk. So here is a ploy that unethical job seekers perpetrate. And this is not even seen as a ploy by almost anybody, but in my honest professional judgment, I believe it is a ploy. And that is having a professional resume writer write the resume or LinkedIn profile. I really believe that that is no more ethical than hiring someone to write your college application essay. You see, many, if not most employers, use a resume or a LinkedIn profile not just as a recitation of the candidate's work history, but as a work sample that demonstrates their writing ability, their reasoning ability, their organizational ability, and how detail-oriented they are. So if a candidate hires someone to write their resume, by definition, the candidate feels the hired gun has those attributes more than the candidate does, which thereby misleads the employer into thinking the candidate's more worthy of being interviewed than the candidate actually is. And of course, that denies a more qualified candidate that interview slot, that step to, that's closer to a job offer. Just imagine how you would feel if you were the unfairly denied candidate. Plus, that candidate denies the employer of the opportunity to consider that more worthy and honest candidate. And in addition, that candidate, if the candidate's successful, is saddling the coworkers and boss with a less qualified, less ethical person. And that denies the customers of the employer's products or services of the benefits of a more qualified employee. Now, I've heard job seekers who hire resume writing pros, they protest. They say, oh, but lots of people hire resume writers. If I don't, I'll be at a disadvantage. Sure you will. But lots of people also lie, cheat, and steal to get an advantage in all sorts of things. Do you really want to justify your dishonesty because there are other dishonest people? How can a, an employer, and this could be in a very small business, maybe some big corporation, how can an employer foil that ploy? Well, when candidates come in for an interview... Have them write maybe like a hundred-word answer to a question that's on one of the job's core difficult tasks. If the writing and thinking ability in the candidate's answer is markedly worse than the writing and thinking ability in the resume, you've got some reason to worry whether the applicant's likely to commit other malfeasance in the employee selection process or worse after being hired. I also have some more. um, I'm going to mention some other ploys. Uh, and uh, and ways to foil them, but uh, let's go to the phones. We you've heard me talk for too long here. Let's um, let's go to the phones. Welcome to work. Let me give out the phone number. If you've got a work related problem, the phone number here for what I call a workover here at KELW on in the show work with Marty Nemco four one five eight four one four one three four. That's four one five eight four one forty one thirty four. And now to the phones. Welcome to the show. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hi Marty. I wanted to ask you. Um, 
I recently started a nonprofit, mm-hmm. and I need to uh, get some board members. I wanted to find out if you could recommend how I would how I do that, and then how I would you know weed people out. Wonderful question, and I love that question. Okay, can you tell me what the nature of the nonprofit is? What's the cause? Uh, basically, it's uh, planting trees to sequester carbon and save all of mankind. So. Okay, so. Um, there are a number of, as you well know, uh, friends of the urban forest. There's so what I would be doing is looking at the donor list <clears throat> at the existing arboreal, that is tree-related nonprofits, and okay. the big donors. Because what you want on your board is is not just money, but you do want money and you do want expertise. People who have donated four and five figures are people who normally have, uh, they're inclined to be generous with regard to trees, and they're likely to have expertise. Um, So that would be, and I would be quite thorough about that, and I wouldn't even necessarily, uh, I'm not sure about this, I was sure about what I just said, I'm I'm less sure of this. Um, If you can't find people locally, there are, you know, I know that corporate boards and national nonprofit boards have people all over the country who never meet in person. They just join by Skype or by phone. You know, there's a, there are these cool $20 uh, speakers that people can be on the phone and yet the speakerphone is as clear as a bell. So my point is get the people who are big donors uh, uh, no matter where they're located. Yes, ideally they're local, but, uh, but go more broadly if you can. Now in terms of vetting, which is a great question as well. The interview, okay. the interview is notorious for uh, for being invalid. So, um, probably, if I were to be recruiting, here's how I would do it in a multi-stage process. First of all, I also would, you know, because of the various, as I started to outline some un- un- nefarious uh, techniques that job seekers use, as well as employers. Your normally your best insulation against that is to get referrals from people you already know and respect. Because that way they're less likely to be obstreperous. You know, a board member can be a huge asset and be a huge pain in the butt. Some try to dominate. Some are just trying to show their ego. Some are always naysayers. Some are Pollyannas. Some are lazy. Some don't show up. And so it is really important. You can't assess that very well because they'll all list references. And it doesn't mean, you know, anybody can get phony references or, or reference somebody who likes them or even, you know. So the key is to try to get referrals. But if you're having now, you've got a list of people you want to interview, what you might want to do is I would invite my, you know, invite them not to join the board, but to, let's say you've got just a three-member board, invite them to be a guest and participate in a meeting. Seeing how they participate in the meeting is a not not a perfect index, but a reasonable indicator of what they will be like if selected to the board. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Well, then, thank you very much for calling work with Marty Nemco. Uh, thank you. Okay. We'll go back to the phones again. I'll give out the phone number again. If you've got a work-related problem, uh, my job here is to help you. Happy to do it. Uh, the phone number, 415 4134. That's 415 841 4134. And back to the phones. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hello. Is this me? It is you. Hi. Uh, I'm 66 years old. I'm a lawyer. I've been told that I have an intimidating resume because I've also been the CEO of a small company, a COO of another small company, uh-huh. a venture capitalist, and I, I've done a variety of things. Uh-huh. But I am. 
unable to find any position, and I don't know if it's ageism or, uh, as some have said, I have an intimidating resume. No, that's a what nice way to say it. No. Normally, when you're 66 and you've done all those things, there have got to be some people. Have you fully tapped the people who respect you from any of those roles as a lawyer, CEO, COO, VC? Have you been systematic in making a list of, say, 20 people who respect you and like you, and instead of being intimidated by your resume, will be impressed. If I were looking to hire somebody, even if I was looking for an administrative assistant who was looking for some part-time work, and you came to me with your resume, I'd, I'd interview you in a minute because I would expand the job to, to capitalize on all your abilities. Have you uh, done a good enough job of systematically tapping your network? Well, I've, I've tapped them, um, and they're sympathetic, but ultimately uh, they haven't been particularly helpful, and have, I'm not sure why. Okay, have you gotten, well, uh, have you, is it appropriate for you to ask for some candid feedback? They won't, people tend to be not honest. Nobody likes to confront. Nobody likes to say the truth. So they all say these nice things. Well, you're really great. You're it's so intimidating. Your resume. Um, do, if you pushed them a little bit for more candor, could you find out what's really going on with that might be, and that might in, help ensure your success in the next job? Well, I suppose I could. I mean, I, I think I've tried to do that. Whether I've done it effectively, um, I can't say. Let's but, drop uh, it. I mean, you know, it's just too easy though to to fall to the ageism thing. I've had clients in their seventies get hired for great positions, and I've had clients in their forties who can't get squat. And it's just too easy to to, to blame it on a demographic. Um, first of all, are you clear about the kind of position that would that if there was the wise man looking down upon you would say this is the job that this guy should have? Uh, do you know what that job would be? Well, quite honestly, I'm, I'd, I'd take any job just because I'm anxious to get one. But what? But let's like. If you're open to everything, it sounds like you're desperate and not, and you're not going to be focused in your job search. I'm asking you to pick what would be the wife, a, a cosmically wisest job that you say this guy. What's your first name? Mark. Mark. That Mark. That is that that that, that everybody would say yes. This is what Mark should be doing. What should Mark be doing? Well, I, I guess I met a guy once who was a consultant to CEOs, and he'd say you know, they had a top ten list of things to do, and he said, you know, give me three of them and I'll take care of them. I think that's something that I could do. That appealed to me. Great. And you know, I'm a problem solver. Great. I, I, do you, do you, and they don't have to be CEOs, they can be anybody at the, you know, the SVP level, EVP level, C, CFO, C, anything probably but CTO. Um, am I right that you, you could be a, a useful Consigliere or a part-time fix-it guy, problem solver for those people. Yes, uh, the problem is I don't know how to find those people. I would give talks if you're a lawyer and you've been a CEO. You've probably been very front-facing at times. I would be giving. I would be submitting proposals to conferences. To you know, for example, there are a young entrepreneur, a young excuse me, young CEO associations. Uh, I right. would submit proposals to them saying 10 things that every young CEO should know and probably doesn't. So by putting yourself out there as the wise old mentor who could be, um, who could be tapped, that's the way you're going to access, to them, access them. Or if there are publications on the web, or probably more than print, if you were to write an article of a similar title, seven ways that a, that a 
a, a private assistant to the executive assistant to a, a CEO can make his or her life much easier, depending on whether you're more of a writer or a speaker, doing one or both of those could unearth um, potential leads. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. That sounds like a good idea. All right. Thank you for calling work with Marty Nemco. Thank you. Okay. Bye. All right. I will. Uh, let's take one more call, and then I'm going to get back to. I promised uh, that I was going to finish uh, offering some of these uh, unethical job seekers that uh, uh, seeking unethical job seeking ploys that are often used. Because I had, in fairness, I had just listed a whole bunch of uh, unethical things that employers do. But let's take one more call. Um, welcome to work with Marty Nemco. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Well, I have a, a question related to ethical. Great. Employment, Great. And I have uh, a situation where I am uh, part of an interview team on an uh, organization that was looking for an ethical and highly competent individual, and yet uh, I have to bring my own personal sentiments into this, and I know that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be applicants that mm-hmm. we're going to be going through mm-hmm. that uh, I want to do uh, due diligence to the ethical questions related to and interrelated to um, uh, basically feminist questions. For instance, I don't want to find out that the person that we hired is a Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. That's not somebody I want to be mm-hmm. a part of an organization. Mm-hmm. So I want to find out how to couch interview questions in such a way that I can uh, determine the kinds of attitudes towards not only women but also towards people who are gender uh, uh, gendered differently than the applicant and or uh, will fit in with the San Francisco landscape. Yeah, that uh, interview is the worst possible place in the employment selection process to do that because the um, who is going to admit to even in subtle ways admitting to being sexist, racist, harassing, whatever? I know. No, so the time to do that is in the post-interview process. It is in the reference-checking process. And I am well aware that especially in San Francisco, to avoid lawsuits, many employers refuse to give references of any sort. But there are ways around that. Uh, and the, there are two ways around it. One is to make, not just send, a, send a, a written request for a reference, but to pick up the phone. First of all, to get a, a, a rather deeper list of references from your finalist number one candidate than you'd normally get. Three, four, five references, maybe five references. Phone each of them. And perhaps if you get them on the phone, great. Tell them I'm, I'm, we're, we're hiring for a very important position and the most important attributes are A, B, C, and D. And you can include the sexual equity uh, question as well. Um, and saying it's really important this person's going to be working very close with me and have, making a, you know, uh, will be making a real difference. Um, can you un- unreservedly uh, embrace this person as somebody that we should consider? Uh, you may or may not get a fully honest answer, but you can learn a lot from tone. And my favorite strategy works so well because, as I said, so many places of employment will not give any reference no matter what, would be to call all five of the final candidates' references after hours and leave a voicemail that says what I just said before. I'm recruiting for a very important position. This Mary Jones is one of the finalists. Um, it's the most important attributes she needs to have her A, B, and C. If you think she's awesome, I would love, and I use the word love, a callback. If not, no need to call back. That gets around any restrictions on providing references. 
unless you get at least unless you get at least three out of five callbacks, beware. Make sense? That does. There you go. Thanks for calling work with Marty Nemco. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Um, finishing up the ploys that unethical job seekers um, perpetrate on employers. Again, and just being fair and balanced because I talked to, kicked off, ticked off a whole bunch that employers uh, perpetrate on employees. Um, the ploy that job seekers do is exaggerated claims and outright lies. Now, what I'm going to say is good practice in general, but it's particularly so if the candidate's claims of accomplishment seem outsized relative to their resume and uh, what you just from what you've read. You've got to probe, really probe. Let's say the candidate claims, and by the way, what I'm about to give as an example is the kind of statement that appears as models in resume guides and interview guides. He may say, or she may say, uh, I spearheaded a marketing initiative that yielded $44 million in profit. And you sense that, as I mentioned, it's unlikely in light, in light of the person's kind of mediocre other interview answers, and maybe you Google search the candidate and maybe looked at his public Facebook and so you might ask something like, um, would you walk me through what you did that generated the $44 million? And then listen carefully and then ask a follow-up that both tests that claim's veracity and assesses how well the candidate would do the job. Like, uh, you said you looked at the data and developed the plan. Well, what queries did you make of the data set? Well, what statistical tests did you use? I know usually uh, one or more hypotheses turn out to be wrong before you, you, you get to a good one. What, what was one of the inadequate ones? And again, I am not saying that most job seekers exaggerate, but enough do to make probing imperative. Also, and this also is, is good interviewing practice, the interview should focus on simulations of common, difficult tasks that the candidate would be doing on the job like running a meeting or laying out a strategy for tackling a complex problem. Their answers can either substantiate or cast into question the candidate's claims. It is far easier to talk a good game than to play one, and simulations make you play one. Also, probe assertions that are particularly subject to a deceptive answer, and that's most likely when you're asking a question that could be a deal killer, like, why did you leave your previous job? Or... Why have you been unemployed so long? Now, there are some job seeker guys and some counselors, unfortunately, who offer these mollifying answers like, I was caring for my ailing grandmother, or I was searching not just for any job but the right one, and I'm excited about this position. This one is great. Well, before you accept that kind of an answer, you want to probe. It's like, um, why don't you walk me through your day-to-day in caring for your grandmother, or tell me about the jobs you rejected. And before you're hiring a candidate, try to verify the major claims with that person's former boss. And if the person doesn't list the boss as a reference, you've got to beware. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes the candidates claim it, it, they're right, that the boss no longer works there and the candidate doesn't know how to find the boss. But too often, the reason is that the boss would give a bad reference, including debunking the candidate's claims of great accomplishments. You might encourage, by the way, the candidate to, to give the name of the boss's name of the boss, previous boss, and the contact info by explaining that speaking with that former boss is going to be key to deciding whom to hire. And if that still doesn't yield the candidate's former boss's contact information, and you're not yet ready to pass on that candidate, you might do what I just told the listener. Call five professional references, 
and their work phone numbers and call after hours, leave a voicemail like I'm considering Joe Jones for an important job that requires excellent skills in, say, data mining and a calm but diligent personality. If you think he'd be great in the job, I'd love it if you'd call me. If not, you needn't call. And again, if you don't get at least three out of five callbacks and they're quite positive, beware. Okay? One other, I have to, one other warning. I have had clients who knew they couldn't get a positive enough reference. We live in an era of, of reference inflation like grade inflation. They couldn't get a positive enough reference from the previous boss or even from coworkers. So they did. They listed friends and relatives as their boss and coworkers. That's another reason to probe the references for details about the candidate's work performance. You see, a shill is likely going to have just wafer-thin knowledge of the candidate's work and is going to end up devolving into generalities. And finally, it is worth the small price. It's like 50 bucks, sometimes less. Subject to any legal restrictions, and there are restrictions, especially here in California and maybe especially more in the Bay Area. Um, subject to legal restrictions, do a background check and a credit check on your finalist candidate or two to verify the degrees they state they have, to verify employment, and if again, if legal, their court record and their credit record. Anyway, um, I hate talking about deception, but uh, it's just simply true that um, maybe one of the more important things that a manager does is to hire wisely, and hopefully these tips will help the best candidate, not just the most deceptive one, uh, get the job. Uh, the phone number here, work with Marty Nemco. If you want to work over, you've got work-related problem. the phone number, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. And now to the phones. Welcome to the show. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hey, Marty, this is Frank. I just want to make a super big comment uh, when you disparage professional uh, resume writers. I worked as a volunteer to help people in transition between jobs. When I found talking to people... Uh, asking questions, it turns out they do a lot more and they take for granted a lot of their good work that they don't put onto their resume. So I think having a second person, whether it's a professional or someone else, walk through and really ask questions and help develop a narrative that reflects their skills and abilities is a good thing. I don't think it's a, an ethical negative. There's a grand canyon of difference between having a friend or a colleague ask a few questions to tease out what you really did on the job and a resume writer who writes, I was very clear, I didn't, I'm not objecting to somebody, you know, asking questions or taking a look at one's resume, but resume right. writers don't do that. They write the resume, which conveys a very false impression of the candidate's thinking skills, writing skills, organizational skills. Uh, nope, that's a, that's a pretty clear one for me, but I thank you for the call. Okay. Okay. Uh, last time, I think I'm going to give out the phone number. If you've got a work-related problem, 415-841-4134. I also promised in the promos for this week that I was going to offer some career change ideas for boomers. Boomers have a particularly difficult time landing a job whether it's because of simply ageism, purely chronological age, or it's because some older boomers are now in their late 50s, 60s, you know, they may not have the energy. They may not be have the technological up to speed. They may be more reluctant to, uh, to take advice from a uh, 25-year-old. They may be less likely to want to work the 12 hours a day that a 25-year-old wants to work. And it's even harder if you're older and you want a new career. Well, fortunately, there are some types of work that are boomer-friendly. And in some of them, your age is even a plus. First, I want to start with uh, options for a minor pivot, because a radical career change, if we're being realistic, is not so easy. But you could change your specialty to seniors. That's applicable in many fields, like 
Counselors and therapists could switch to focusing on older people. Physicians can focus on geriatric patients. Lawyers can specialize in elder or estate law. Another example of a minor pivot is being a consultant. There are consulting firms that exist in everything from administrative assisting to software implementation, um, process efficiency, team building for executives. And if you've got years of experience, you're a boomer, that gives you credibility that a younger person can't have. Now, you might not need to be a self-employment consultant, which requires marketing skills, and a lot of people who spent their life working as an employee, they probably don't have great marketing skills. But that, if there are these consulting firms, tons of them, marketing is their responsibility. Your job is simply to provide the expertise you've acquired over the decades. But now let's turn to some options for a major career change for boomers. Politician. Yeah, of course. There are young, pretty faces like Beto O'Rourke or Kamala Harris. They have an edge in politics as well as in life. But being older and less, con- let's just say, less conventionally attractive is but one strike against you. Like, look at Bernie Sanders. Look at Barbara Mikulski. And, yes, President Trump. And, of course, with government so large and so multi-level, there are opportunities as a politician in everything from you're the local town school board to being on a regional water board or parks district, city council, state office, state assembly, state senate, federal office. Um, so being a politician is, uh, is not a closed door for older, older people who want to make a career change. Lobbyist. Many lobbyists, whether it's for an activist group or for industry, they find lobbying a very rewarding capstone experience to their work life. See, if in your, when you're a lobbyist, your age is a plus because of your experience, your expertise. You've acquired, hopefully, some people skills and hopefully some patience, which is a must when you're expecting government to change something. Another age-friendly career for older people is fundraiser. You see, most people with the money and the wisdom to donate rather than spend are older, and they're more likely to trust an older solicitor of that money. This is an odd one. Image consultant and personal shopper specializing in older people. I This is kind of not exactly that, but I had a, it was a little bit related. I had a client, she was in her 60s, yet she looked great for her age, and she got a job in a cosmetic surgery clinic, which of course is proportionally gets older people to handle administrative matters, and to answer nervous patient questions. Her age was a plus. A 25-year-old will feel less trustworthy. If you're 60 and getting a facelift, you're going to probably feel better about getting your answers, even if it's you know uh, basic answers that, uh, that don't require the doctor. If the, uh, if the person answering the question is 50 or 60 or 70, then somebody is 25. And finally, and this is another oddball, one, uh, being a model. There's many young people who pursue a modeling career, but a lot fewer older people do. And yet many ads and commercials are aimed at boomers and even the so-called great generation, that's older people in their 70s and 80s, uh, 90s, I guess. Uh, And another example of a career change idea for boomers is sales of products that are aimed at seniors, like luxury items. It's older people that tend to have the money to, you know, they've accumulated enough in savings to buy stuff like a luxury car or a boat or an airplane lease or architectural services for the addition they want to build on their house or whatever, uh, commercial real estate, uh, especially big ticket ones like skyscrapers and stadiums and hotels and resorts. Plus, 
you know, older people, because they're aware of their mortality, they figure it's better to spend their money than maybe to, for example, give it to their kids because they fear if they give it to their kids that it might make the kids lazy or even create the, uh, the bite-the-hand-that-feeds-you syndrome. Another example of a, a senior-oriented product that an older a boomer or an older person might want to sell is insurance. Now, understandably, young people don't want to think much about insurance, but older people do, again, because they're aware of their mortality. So, and again, older people are likely to feel better about talking about that kind of stuff, insurance and death and dying, with uh, people of a similar age than with a millennial. Another kind of sales uh, gig that would be appropriate for older people might be senior housing. Whether you're selling, you know, reti- you know, selling spaces in a retirement community or managing a retirement community, because the aging boomer bubble, um, because of that, a lot of people who have saved up enough, and there aren't that many, I was reading some recent statistics, they're flocking to these sometimes often quite lovely senior communities that are springing up. I did a, uh, I do my one-man show, Odd Man Out, and I did it for a senior community in, of all places, Fairfield. And it was gorgeous. I think it was called Paradise something, Paradise Estates or something. It was gorgeous. Um, uh, I'm sure that and they have a large staff and they certainly have salespeople. Another example of a sales uh, kind of product that would be appropriate for seniors is um, durable medical equipment. Now, that would seem to be, uh, for me, would be a very psychologically difficult kind of sales because people who need a walker or a wheelchair or a medical bed or a commode, they're not in great shape. And so... I'd imagine that just like a hospice nurse would need to set emotional boundaries if they're going to last. Uh, the salespeople of durable medical equipment have to do that too. When my mom was dying, I got to know um, a medical equipment salesman and I got to know some hospice nurses. And man, their calmness around death and dying, it was like amazing. I, I was, that's not something I had to give for. And finally, continuing this, uh, the, the projection forward through the conveyor belt of life if you're selling a senior-oriented product, the ultimate example, of course, is funeral-related sales, funeral. Of course, the funeral salesperson is dealing with uh, the deceased's aged spouse or boomer kids most of the time, and being older may help you relate better to them. Now, I have to say, this industry has been subject to exposés of salespeople taking advantage of the bereaved in their time of stress, so please, as with all careers, but especially this, please keep your ethics primary. You're going to do well enough and you'll sleep better at night. Another career that's very good for uh, older folks would be working for the Social Security Administration or other government agencies or nonprofits aimed at seniors. Government, it seems to be more open to hiring older workers than our other employers. And that, plus the plethora, as I mentioned earlier, of government and nonprofit entities aimed at seniors uh, could make that a viable option. Care manager. They used to be called geriatric care manager because I guess there are people who get disabled at a young age, and so they didn't want to limit it to older people. But generally, they help older people uh, coordinate the direct hands-on help. They recruit caretakers. They do paperwork. They pay bills. They periodically visit to ensure everything is working. Uh, again, not surprising. That's a, you know kind of work that age can be a plus. Now... Um, I've only got a couple minutes left, so what do I want to do? I guess I promised this. I promised that um, at the end of last week, I was starting to give some careers uh, for people who were bad in math, and I didn't get a chance to do it. So I I guess I should end the show by keeping my promise. Um, I'll tick them off quickly. Psychotherapists, counselors, and coaches, uh, they don't need much math. Social workers, um, 
politicians is also doesn't require math chops. Mediator, if you're a lawyer or a psychologist with a gift for conflict resolution and, alas, for marketing, you can make a living in that quite rewarding career. But to avoid having to compete with zillions of attorneys who want to escape contentious lawyering, it helps to specialize. So you might specialize in landlord-tenant or divorce or employees in a particular field. For example, one of my clients specializes in mediating disputes between postal workers and management. I also mentioned hair cutter in another context. Um, it's also great for people who are not great with uh, who are not great with math. Um, being in not STEM sales or fundraising, um, that's among the more lucrative careers. It doesn't require an advanced degree, and so here is you know whether it's uh, selling wedding venues or catering sales, the aforementioned senior housing, being personal, you know, being a recruiter for personnel. That by the way, that is sales because you're selling companies to buy you as the person recruiting its non its new employees. And in the nonprofit realm, of course, uh, you know, uh, being a fundraiser as I mentioned earlier. Uh, graphic artist. No, you probably can't make a living taking months to splatter paint on your canvas, but you might make a living in art if you can quickly produce quality images that are going to make people buy or if you're working for a nonprofit, donate. And uh, attorney. Um, it's another of the more lucrative careers. It doesn't require much math. Of course, there are some attorneys like tax lawyers and estate lawyers, maybe some corporate lawyers who need to crunch numbers, but many others don't like uh, divorce law or state law or employment law. And uh, so that's a, that's a sample of um, uh, careers for people who are bad at math. have another one minute left. Um, I was talking also last week and didn't get a chance to finish it because I was taking lots of calls, um, was the criticality of feedback. And I was talking about urging people to, I know it's scary, but it's worth, it really is worth doing. So um, I was going to offer some suggested language for how do you can go about soliciting feedback apart from the regular annual review. So I would say something like, like any professional, I'm always trying to grow. So I'm sending this survey. It could be like a survey monkey thing, you know. Um, uh, I'm sending this survey to which you can reply anonymously. Um, I've been your manager or whatever. So I'm wondering what I've done that's been particularly helpful or not, and I really would appreciate your candor. Or if you're talking to somebody in person, what uh, letter grade from A to F would you give my performance, say, as a manager? What's something good or bad that I do? And I welcome your focusing on things I could improve, but of course, I'm also open to hearing what seem to be you know, permanent characteristics. Anyway, so... Um, Though that's that is the show that is work with Marty Nemco for this week. I wanted, to, as usual, try to cram in as much, as they say, value added as I could in the time. Uh, I do want to thank my board operator Joanne Marr, and of course to all of you for listening and calling in all these thirty years. Please join me again next Thursday at seven. You can call in for a workover. Plus, my wife Barbara Nemco and I are going to debate the case for and the case against work-life balance. There is a case for both for and against. Plus. I will offer some career advice for older people. Until then, this is Marty Nemco reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't.